Uh, I, I, about, I don't know, four, four weeks ago, I went to this thing in the shopping centre in the middle of Watford called Rock Up. I don't know if any of you have seen it or been in, but it's like a, it's like a climbing wall uh, experience. And I, I took my two older boys, and I, I was going to do it with them. So when I arrived, they strap all of us into these kind of harnesses with these cables attached and these ropes. And then um, when you start climbing the wall, you have to click in to the, the harness. And the idea is that you climb, and they, 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 they're they feel pretty high when you're on them. I don't, maybe they don't look that high, but when you're at the top of one, it does feel like you are well up in the air. And the idea is that you, you, know, you climb up the wall, and then you get to the top and you hit this button and, um, you know, to say you've done it, and then comes the point where you have to let go. You just have to let go of the wall, and the idea is that as you let go, this rope sort of holds your weight and gently lowers you to the ground. And, and uh, I was trying to lead by example with my boys. So I was, you know, climbing the walls. And then what happened is every single time I got to the bit where you have to let go, um, my head said, this is perfectly safe. This has been tested by professionals and experts. And this rope can hold your weight. But my body said, don't do it. You're mad, right? And I, and I had this inner fight of like, you know, trying to win so that I would eventually let go. And then uh, even after we'd been doing this for an hour, and I'd done this on like every single wall, I still found myself really resistant to actually just letting go. And they also have this thing called, that they call the stairway to heaven, which are like these pillars that get progressively higher with no handholds, and you just have to step onto them and step onto the next one. Um, and my, my seven-year-old, he went all the way to the top of the stairway to heaven and then came back down again, and I was not to be outdone. So um, I also made it to the top of the stairway to heaven, and I'm just standing again, feels like really high on this pillar. And again, I have this internal battle in my head of like, you know, the head says, the rope is strong enough. You've just seen that like 10 times. But the body says, no! Right? And in the end, what I, I end up stepping off, but sort of half stepping off. So I kind of flopped off. And then, and then I remember what happened is, because I, I stepped off in the wrong way and I flopped off, my weight was all wrong. So then I just started to swing down like a conker on the end of a string, smashing into the pillars of the stairway to heaven on my way back down to hell. And hell was this group of eight-year-olds laughing at me as I kind of like made my descent. Um, and I've been thinking about it since, and thinking, you know, it's so annoying that I couldn't just convince my, my instincts to go with my head, because my head was right, you know, but, but the body was just fighting it. And isn't it the case that in so many areas of our lives, we have those kind of, that disconnect between the head and what's going on in the heart. Even phobias, another example of it. You know, spiders. Anyone scared of spiders? There's, a, there's quite a few of us. And a spider in this country cannot do anything to it. It can tickle you. And it can spin a little cobweb between your fingers. But beyond that, it's no risk. It's no danger. And yet you flick a spider at somebody and they can have this massive reaction because the, the head and the heart have this disconnect. And um, if that's true of things like that, that is also true for lots of us when we come to the Scripture, when we come to the truths of God. And it can be stuff that we've heard so many times that we can recite even, but it stays in the head and it doesn't seem to penetrate the soul. It doesn't seem to make it to the heart. And the longer I do this, the more I realize the key for us growing as followers of Jesus is not acquiring information, although there's a place for that, 
But it's not more information for its own sake. It's, it's actually, it's deeply digesting, if I could put it like that, a few truths about who he is. And probably the primary one would be the truth of his love. How many of us have sat in church and heard about his love and yet still struggle to really rest in it? Um, and so if there was an antidote to this disconnect, one of the things that it would be is to allow ourselves to soak in his truth like we soak in a bath, just to, to let ourselves be with his truth. And so there's one particular truth that I want to look at uh, this morning, and it's from Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to read. Mike read a little bit at the start. I'm just going to read from verse 35. Paul says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's the truth that I want to pull from that. It's, it's not just that the Lord of heaven loves us. It's that he will never stop loving us, that, that the relationship that we have begun with Jesus, that, that intimate relationship where we said yes to him and we were, we've been held by him, the, the love that he has for us now that is as wide as the ocean and as endless as the sea, the love that he has for us now will continue for always. We will never, ever, ever be separated from his love. That's the truth. And uh, and yet we can struggle to accept that. I know I can. And I remember when I was training to be a vicar, they sent me as a chaplain uh, to a hospital and I had to just sit with people and chat with them and hear their stories a little bit. And there was this lady that I sat with called Margaret. And this is years ago now, but I've never forgotten it because we sat there chatting and she told me a bit about herself. She and her husband, they'd been going to church their whole lives. Um, and... He was called Terry, and the two of them lived in this upstairs flat, and they didn't get out much anymore. They couldn't make it to church, so they would watch songs of praise, and that was their way of sort of having church. And, and anyway, she's lying there, and we just have this lovely chat. And then just as I'm getting up to leave, she, she drops the thing that I think she'd probably wanted to say the whole time, but hadn't been able to, on me. I, I held her hand to say goodbye, and then she wouldn't let mine go. And her eyes filled with tears, and she, as she held my hand, she just said to me, some, there's like a quaver in her voice. She said, sometimes I wonder if I've done something. And she says, Terry doesn't think that he has. He thinks he's all right. But sometimes I wonder if maybe I've done something. And, and what she was saying is that she sometimes, she knows she hasn't got long before she meets Jesus face to face. And she's worried that she somehow offended him, that something maybe somewhere along the way without her even knowing Maybe she upset him, and so when she sees him face to face, she's worried that she's going to be rejected by him. And I didn't know what to say in the moment, but I've thought about that a lot since, and I've thought, you spent your whole life in church. Week after week after week, listening to the truth about God and who he is, and you still find yourself in your 80s in a hospital bed 
fearing quietly to yourself, afraid even to mention it to hardly anybody, maybe I've done something. Maybe I've offended him. And, and that just really impacted me. And I thought, Margaret, what are you thinking? But then at the same time, I recognized that in myself, in my soul, that there are times where I wonder, have I done something? There are times when I feel insecure. Have you ever had it where it, you, you get a truth for a moment? It's like you really believe it, you really get it. And then within an hour, within the next day, it's, it's like it's disappeared like water down a plug hole. It's like, where did it go? Why is it that we find it so hard to absorb this truth? How is it so difficult to get it from here to here? And, and part of the answer for that is that we are conditioned by the world that we're a part of. We haven't always been following Jesus, and we grow up in a world that's apart from him, and it has a certain way of operating that he doesn't have. So Mike and I, we were in Hawaii, as you may well know, a, a few weeks ago, and uh, we hired a car, and in Hawaii, as they do in all of America, they drive on the wrong side of the road. And um, uh, Mike and I, you know, there's no point where we ever come closest to literally exchanging blows than when we're in a car together and one of us is backseat driving. Um, which we both do, and you can tell that we do that with the church and the notices and everything else. But uh, Mike is probably the world's, world's, the world's worst backseat driver. Um, and he's constantly there. <laughs> I have to say, shut up. Uh, I do have to say to you, my wife is also a terrible backseat driver. So I am actually starting to wonder, is it the case that I'm just a really bad driver? Um, but anyway... So we, we drive along, and it's, do you know, when you're conditioned to drive on the left, it's really hard to drive on the right. It's like, it's like you have to really concentrate, and particularly when you're tired, and particularly when you're stressed, autopilot just kicks in, doesn't it? And you sort of like, you know, without realizing, you can be driving into oncoming traffic. The reason for that is because we're conditioned, you know? We've just grown up in a place where we drive on that side of the road, so that's what we do without even thinking about it. Well, we've grown up in, in a world where, where we experience love, but even at its best, it's but a shadow of the love of God. And for most of us, it's not love at its best. It's the love that we give and the love that we receive. So often it is hot and cold. You know, it's, it's messy, it's conditional, it's broken, and, and we think he's like us. And we're conditioned so that we hear this truth, and when we're concentrating on it, we get it for a bit, but then we get tired and we get stressed and we slip back into thinking that his love is like everybody else's love, and it's different, it's not. Another reason why I think we struggle is because we have an enemy. Satan is real. And he is out to get us just like he was out to get Jesus. And Satan, his primary weapon, his main one, is lies. He's called the father of lies by Jesus. And he is a brilliant liar. And one of the things he loves to do is he loves to lie about the truth that we read in these pages. Um, and Mike pointed out, we were chatting about it the other day, he pointed out to me that the first words of Satan in the Scripture, the first words, you know, in the great drama of the, the, the play that we read about in the Bible, Satan's opening line in the Garden of Eden is this. Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit from that tree? 
what he does is he calls into question the truths of God. And so we get these truths when we come to the book and they're like seeds planted in our hearts. And then he's like this little bird that comes and snatches them away before they can take root. He tries it with Jesus. So the father speaks over Jesus. You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Then the very next thing that happens is Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan comes to him and he introduces a two-letter word that changes the meaning quite a bit. He says, if you really are the son of God, if you really are. And, and so we have this conditioning that means we struggle to absorb a truth because we've never met a love like this and we have an enemy that's always questioning it. That's part of the reason why it's hard for us to trust it. And yet what Paul writes here, and I love the way he phrases it, is he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, I am totally persuaded. I am completely sold on this. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. He says it without qualification, without hesitation. It's absolute truth. Nothing can separate me from his love. And, and this isn't Paul sort of like me on the, on the stairway of heaven, half trusting in the rope, sort of like, and making an idiot of himself. This is Paul fully trusting his weight to the love of God. And, and for us, his love is not like a rope that we, that we trust in. It's not something abstract. He's a person. It's someone that we know. That's why he says here, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've met his love. He was born among us. We see his love in the face of Jesus, in the hands of Jesus, in the compassion of Jesus. And so when we talk about trusting in his love, we're not talking about this thing that floats in the atmosphere. We're talking about somebody we know. And it's not that we're trusting a rope won't break. What we're trusting is instead that an embrace that we receive when we say yes to him will never be taken from us. And one of the pictures we have for our relationship with God in the scripture is that he is our father and we are his kids. We're his children. Now, if you can imagine like a father who hasn't seen his son for a couple of years, maybe they've been separated because of COVID, and he's waiting at the arrivals at the airport for his son to land. He hasn't seen him for two years. And then he sees his boy walk through the gate, and he runs to him, and he grabs him, and he embraces him. Some of us have had experiences like that over the last little while. Do you think he would embrace him quickly? Or do you think he would take his time? Do you think it would be a pat on the shoulder, or do you think he'd hold him close? Imagine, imagine a father who he hasn't seen them for 15 years because he's walked out on him and then suddenly there's reconciliation and he holds him close. Do you think there would be distance there as he held him? And we have a father, we're told, who in the person of Jesus left the throne of glory. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, they endure. Do we think that they would endure everything that they went through on the cross? Everything, that the, the whole ordeal? To, to, to hold us close, to then let us go? Do we think anything will break that embrace? It won't, it can't. We're told in the Psalms that though my father and mother forsake me, you will never forsake me, and that's true. Even those of us who have the best fathers and the best mothers will eventually be forsaken by them because they will die. But God, our father, will never forsake us. We will never be separated from him. And there's another picture the father and the child, yes, but also the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom and we as the bride, his church. And, 
Um, if you've ever been to a wedding, you'll know. But, but for me, one of the most moving moments of a wedding is where the couple make their vows to each other. And everybody's there in silence and they watch as they sort of recite the words. And in an Anglican wedding, the vows that they say include these words. They promise to be there for each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death is due part. And it is a celebration of their love for each other right there in that moment, that they feel it right there in that moment. But it's so much more a celebration of those vows, a promise of future love, that whatever happens, that come what may, that through the highs and the lows, they will always be there for each other. They will always kind of love each other. And there's this moment where the vicar, um, he, he takes their hands and he joins them together and if he has a stole on, you know, there's sort of like classic Anglican dresses. If he has a stole on, he takes his stole and he wraps it around their hands like this and then holds them up. And whenever I do this, I have in my head um, that picture of Gandalf where he goes, you shall not pass. Um, I don't vocalize that in the moment, but that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> that's, that's who I'm impersonating. And I wrap their hands up like this and then you hold their hands up like that and you say, those whom God has joined together let no one put asunder. No one mess with this. Let no one break this apart. Now what we have is a God who comes to us and who effectively marries us. I know it's a strange image, but he does. The bridegroom Jesus takes us in his hand. And then what he does is he wraps up that union with the Holy Spirit. He just wraps us up with the Spirit of God, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the forever Spirit of Jesus that will never abandon us. And then it's like he doesn't hold the hand up and say, let no one mess with this. What he says is no one can separate this. No one can. Nothing can. Nothing can ever come between me and my bride. And this is the truth. Paul says I'm persuaded of it, totally. And I say, but what if I mess up? Have you ever felt that? What if I make a mistake? So he loves me today, but, but what if I really get things wrong? Because I know what I'm like, and I know I will at times. And, uh, you know, the truth is we can choose to distance ourselves from him, but he will never distance himself from us. And our hope is not in our ability to never mess it up. It's in his ability to love us whatever happens. It's a little like if I get into the swimming pool with my three-year-old and I'm holding his hand, the two of us are holding hands. You know what? The strength of that union is not coming from him. Now, it's important that he holds my hand, but the real strength, the real hope, the real security comes from my arm. I'm holding him. We're all like that. The strength of our hold on him, is, it matters but the real hope and the real security is found in the fact that he is holding us and he will never let us go. He will never let us be, be distanced from him. The cross, it covers everything. It always has and it always will. And I said, but what if I do something really bad? What if I do something that really shocks him? You won't shock him. I mean, it might be bad, but you won't shock him. He won't be surprised by it. Mike and I were chatting just earlier this morning, and he just said it's, ama he said, it's amazing, the plan of salvation. God factored in our stupidity. And I love that way of putting it. And I wish I'd been back there with Margaret when she said, what if I'd done something? I'm worried if I've done something. And I wish I could have leaned close and whispered to this beautiful, elderly, old lady, Margaret, 
he factored in your stupidity. <laughs> Just like he factored in mine. You will do something. You will mess up. That's not an excuse. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. But what it means is it will not separate him from you. And then we say, but, but for me it's like, but if he loves me, if I can never be separated from his love, then why is all this stuff happening to me? Have you ever had that one? Why is this going on? Why am I bereaved? Why is my marriage breaking down, even though I started it with the best of intentions? Why have I lost my job? Why am I struggling with my mental health? If he really loves me, then why is all of this going wrong? And the enemy whispers to us, if, if you could never be separated from his love, this wouldn't be happening. And, you know, there's nowhere in the scripture that I can find where Jesus tells us life will be easy. That's a Bible verse I feel like I've memorized and I went back to check it and it's not in the original. It doesn't say that. Um, I, I remember, you know, there's, there's a Christian I'm familiar with who his whole life, all he did is he tried to tell people about Jesus. Left, right, and center. It's what he lived for. And in his life, he had all sorts of things go wrong for him. One of the things is he ended up in all these accidents, one of which nearly cost him his life. Uh, one of the things that he, he, happened to him is, is people kept taking, beating him up. I mean, literally beating him up. There was one time he was beaten up, and the people beat him so badly they thought they'd killed him and they left him for dead. And he ended up actually, bizarrely, a lot of his time being afraid, even though all he was trying to do was tell people about Jesus. He, he even spent a whole load of time in prison, and that was where a lot of his ministry happened in and happened from. And eventually, his life doesn't have the happy ending as we might understand it. Eventually, the way it ended is his head was chopped off. And his name is Paul. And he wrote Romans chapter 8. And what he says in Romans chapter 8 is he says, I'm convinced. I've been through everything and I'm convinced. And the call, as much as I would love it to be, is not one to a life of superficial happiness. Everything being comfortable on the surface, that's not what it says. And, and, and he wants to bless us. I mean, it says here, like, if he gave us his only son, will he not graciously, along with him, also give us all things? If he gives us a gift worth a billion pounds, is he going to skimp on the wrapping paper? Like, he wants to bless us and give us good things. But, but ultimately, the call is to a life of deep joy and a life of purpose beyond just living for ourselves and a life where we have eternal life to look forward to. And so we live according with that perspective and a life where we lay down our lives, where sometimes we actively choose the path of suffering, not for its own sake, but because we know that's the direction of obedience and that's the direction of the way of Jesus. That's the call. And so even in the midst of suffering, Paul found and others have found that nothing can separate us from his love. Just because we suffer doesn't mean he's apart. And um, there, there have been people over the years who have found this time and again. Paul says that effectively, when we know this, we are more than conquerors, even when it doesn't look like that on the surface. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he was around in Germany uh, as Hitler was gathering power, and a lot of the church just affirmed what the Nazis were doing, and Bonhoeffer wouldn't. And he stood up and he condemned it. And partly as a consequence of that, he ended up being arrested and put in a prisoner of war camp. 
And uh, just before the, um, the Americans liberated his camp, just a few days before, when Bonhoeffer was 39, he was executed. He was hanged. And um, a decade later, there was a camp doctor who kind of witnessed Bonhoeffer's death. And he describes what happened. He says this, the prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. He died. He was executed because of what he was doing for the kingdom of heaven. He died because of it. And yet, he was not separate from God's love. He was not apart from the love. I heard of this other guy, this well-known Scottish Christian who lived back in the day. And when he was dying, he called for a Bible. And these people brought him a Bible. And by this point, he was blind, so he couldn't see. So he said, will you please open the Bible to Romans chapter 8 and find the words. He says, put my finger on the words where it says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death. Now, he said, is my finger on the words? And they said, yes, it is. And he said, now God be with you, my children. I have had breakfast with you. I will have dinner with Jesus. And then he died. What an exit. What a way to go, right? I'm already working on my own. I'm like, which, which verse shall I use? But it's like, but that's the truth. And he was persuaded of that truth because it is the truth. And it changes everything when we get it. We don't step off the platform half hoping, not wondering. We don't walk into work half wondering, not, you know, half wondering but not knowing. It changes everything. And the truth is this, you know, Paul says it, I'm convinced that neither death, death doesn't have the power to separate us from God's love, nor life. Life can't, even if it tries, no matter what happens. Angels, they don't want to. Demons, they flee from his very name. Powers, nothing is more powerful than him. The present, he's here with us now. The future, he'll be there with us then. The heights, they just bring us closer. The depths, they just bring him nearer. And anything else in all creation, nothing can separate us from the overwhelming furnace of the love of God that is ours in the person and the Savior of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the love we have been looking for our whole lives. And what's more, we'll never, ever, from now until always, be apart from it. Amen? Amen. Amen.